In this episode, you will learn how to build a successful SaaS business while maintaining a balanced lifestyle. Hi, my name is Alexei and I help founders scale. My guest today is Amar Ghosh, who built Zenmate, a software business for maid service. Amar impressively built and bootstrapped Zenmate to $2.5 million ARR today. He did that while traveling the world and living as a digital nomad. Amar bootstrapped while working full-time as a sales executive at a tech company in Silicon Valley. And we find out why he decided to bootstrap and not raise from VCs despite being in the Bay Area. Enough of this introduction, let's dive into the episode. Hi, Amar. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Cool. So for context, you're the CEO and founder of a bootstrap business called Zenmate, which is a software as a service business for made services, right? And you bootstrap the business over the last 10 years and have close to 2.5 million ARR as of today. Correct. That's amazing. So, uh, tell us everything about it, right? I guess like, how did you start the business? How did you come up with the idea and you know, how did, uh, whatever first two, three years look like? Yeah, definitely. Um, so essentially sometime when, um, like just post college, I was looking for like just kind of entrepreneurial like side hustles. I've always had that kind of like that kind of bug. And so I came across a thread on Reddit uh, about what, 13 years ago at this point, that was essentially on how to start your own cleaning service without doing any cleaning. So it was essentially like the digital marketers approach to like starting a cleaning business, right? Like it, it could have could have just been like named that, um, like for for accuracy. And so I did that with a friend and was running a maid service in Southern California for 12 to 14 months, somewhere like around there. And at the time, there wasn't great software out there that we'd looked around. A lot of it was expensive. Um, it was difficult to find anything that was designed specifically for our industry. And the one that we did find looked like it was built before computers, um, like it was very confusing. Um, and so essentially, we had built in our own little back end to do the scheduling, to send SMS reminders, and just a couple other really like basic things. And so what happened was, we didn't particularly enjoy running the actual maid service and a couple of things led us to closing that down. And so when I closed that down, one of my friends uh, in Northern California, where I grew up, that I grew up in Silicon Valley, he approached me and was like, hey, uh, you know, I saw what you guys were doing on the back end. I think that we can turn that into a software product that we can sell to other like to other maid services. And so it was the very typical like, you know, he essentially came to me and was like, we're every VC's like dream team of like, I can take care of the technical stuff, you know, the industry and can do the sales and marketing, we should do this. And so I think initially we, we had it or not like had it in our head, but I think we were open to potentially like taking funding if like if that opportunity had like had had arose and everything but that was essentially how how the company started how the idea got off the ground 
My co-founder spent about six months um, coding while I jumped on the phones and was doing cold calls and cold emailing to maid services like all over the, um, the, the U.S. And yeah, we essentially, we launched about six months later, brought on like maybe three, four customers at the beginning. And the cold email and cold calling actually took us from zero to a hundred customers. And then around a hundred customers, we landed our first, um, our first partnership with a coach or like an industry, like an industry influencer. And so she sent us a nice amount of business that helped us to go from like maybe a hundred to 150 customers, like somewhere around there. And sometime in that, in that like phase is when we began to get more of the inbound marketing working. And so, so around there, so, so it was essentially outbound for maybe the first year, year and a half. And then around 18 months in, then we began to see people coming to us, hearing about it from folks, searching on Google and, and all of that stuff. And then uh, pretty much since then, it's been all inbound marketing, which I'm sure we can, we can jump into. Wow. 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 Yeah. It's fascinating. It's, uh, you know, you, you presented it very, very easy. And there's a lot on in there, so maybe we should unpack a few things. So, yeah, it's basically like the perfect scenario, as you mentioned, a domain expert and a technical person coming together, you know, creating a solution for a problem they know it, which exists out there. Uh, there is a really, I forgot the name, but there's this unicorn where the founders bought a barber shop to learn everything about a barbershop and then create a software yeah. and then basically, you know, became a massive software player for barbershops. Right. Um, that's cool. That's very, very cool. Um, and the, the, you, you mentioned the first hundred customers is you just being on the phone constantly calling up different made service businesses and pitching and pitching, right? How did you deal yeah. with rejections, but also how did you, get them to actually uh, use you? Did you say, hey, um, do you have five minutes? I just briefly show you a demo and then you kind of like price it super low just to get them in and then like use a land and expand strategy or how did you, you know, get to hundred customers so quickly, let's say. Yeah. So, um, First of all, it was not quick at all. And just, just for the record, it took forever. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so what, what so, is forever? Maybe yeah, as well, right? Like you've been ten years building it. Like how long did it actually take you yeah, to get to one hundred customers? Yeah. Well, so like right now, so I don't remember how long it took us to get to a hundred customers, but I mean, it, it was definitely over a year. It was probably like eighteen months or like or something like that. But I know that. I've looked at the numbers like over time, like, I mean, it took us over three years. It took us 38 months to get to $10,000 in monthly recurring revenue with the two of us, like working on it as like our main thing. I mean, granted, both of us had like full-time jobs outside of that, but it was like just the two of us on there. Um, but in terms of like how we did, we, how we like got the sales and everything and how we got people on the phone. So the first thing is... I did sales in like in a previous life that when I came out of college, that was my job, right? So when we started working on this company together, the first two years that we were doing it, I was doing sales for a tech startup 
in San Francisco and then was making these calls to maid services before I would go into the office. And then when I got home, I would do the marketing and like an all of like all of that stuff. So of course, like that, that affects like the timelines. But to your question about how I approached those, uh, those phone calls, because I'd run a maid service before, my goal was always to like add value first. And so it was more the way that we went about doing it. So what would actually, what helped a lot was that when I first started making these calls, I didn't have a product to show. I didn't have a product to actually sell. And so because of that, I had to take a different approach to getting on the calls where it was, hey, like I used to run a maid service that like I recently shut down. A friend and I have started working on like scheduling software. I was wondering like, do you have a few minutes to um, to chat about kind of how you're solving your current like calendar and scheduling like problems. And then I'm happy to give you any feedback or if you have any questions about anything that I did at my maid service, I'm happy while we're on this call to just answer any questions that you have. And so my goal was to essentially add value to them in some way that wasn't related to scheduling, that wasn't related to our software so that they would essentially take my calls in the future. I figured if I did that, then I would get unlimited chances to like to sell. And then once the product actually came out, I tried to go to more of a hard sell kind of mode. And I didn't really like the way that it made me feel. Even when we got sales, I didn't feel like I'd built a relationship with the person. And so we actually quite quickly ended up going back to almost the customer development type like type model um in, in terms of like those sales calls so it was more like being upfront of like i have this thing that i'm working on but i just want to talk to you about your challenges around this problem that we're solving um yeah oftentimes i wouldn't give a demo until two or three calls in but they would be quite short calls it wasn't like an hour call each it might have been 15 20 minutes at the most okay so it's yeah it's a customer research approach right which basically mm -hmm. means that their guard is much lower or, you know, non-existent. And then mm -hmm. by building the rapport and them being, you know, also curious, I guess, and, you know, trying to optimize their own work, they probably even asked you to, Hey, by the way, yeah. Can we become a customer? Right. A lot of the times. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They were always willing to at least check out the software. And that's kind of been our approach to sales and marketing of like, look, like our software might not be for you, but when you're looking, you're, you're definitely going to give us a look. Right. And then from there, the software kind of has to do the work and has to do the heavy lifting. Right. That like, you know, the best salesman in the world can't sell a shit product. Right. Like, so, um, yeah. 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 That's cool. And then you mentioned the, was it the first three years that you still worked as a salesperson for a tech company in parallel while building? And then I guess when you got to 10 K a month, is that when you decided to leave the other job or when did you leave the other job? No, it was actually sooner than that. So I actually left that other job about, about two years in, about two years in. So it was definitely before we were at 10 K, um, 10 K in monthly recurring revenue. If I remember correctly, I think we were about at about $7,000 in monthly recurring revenue when I, um, when I quit that job. And at that point, what it was is just, we felt like we had a more validated idea that $7,000 isn't a lot, but it was a lot of customers of the exact same types. We were very confident that we had good enough product market fit. And at that point, there were a couple of factors, but essentially 
I was just realizing that I was spending so much of my mental cycle selling someone else's product, right? And that like, even for me, like it may not put as much money in the bank immediately, but like for like my long-term equity and like net worth, it was worth so much more to me to sell a $50 a month subscription to the product that I own versus a $500 a month subscription for someone else, right? Mm -hmm. Just with commissions and all of that stuff. So we, we just felt like it was like the right time to kind of double down. We hadn't been taking any money out of the business up until that point that we hadn't paid ourselves at all so at that point we agreed to start paying me just a little bit of money out of the seven thousand a month that was coming in and then the final like nail in the coffin for it was i was living like south of san francisco at the time was commuting an hour and a half like two hours a day to go back and forth like from like from the office but the worst thing about it was that i wasn't even saving any money that because like I would go drinking with friends on the weekends and just like, you know, rent was expensive and life was expensive and all these things. I was looking at it and just going, you know what, like I'm here to like buy time, but I'm not even getting ahead by being here anymore. And so what I actually did was at the, at the start of 2015, we started paying me just a thousand dollars a month. So very, very short, like small amount of like of money, but I jumped on a flight to Thailand went to Chiang Mai and dropped my expenses to like, you know, $650, $700 like a month and lived, you know, arguably better there than I was in San Francisco. And, you know, so yeah, that, that was essentially what I, what, what I did. So that's, that's a nice, nice segue into the digital nomad adventure. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Yeah. And we obviously were hanging out in Chiang Mai a month ago and I could totally yeah. See how a lot of bootstrappers go there, uh, you know, to reduce their living expenses to, you know, $500, $600 a month to just build a business. Um, yeah. No, that's a really cool story. Yeah. So, um, but why were you paying yourself actually so little if you weren't doing any other marketing activities apart from cold calling? Or was it already when you started? I don't know, spending more money on like other things. Yeah, so we um we had a couple of expenses, but nothing nothing crazy. I mean, I think we were making seven thousand a month. We might have been spending like two k or something on like Google ads. So we had had Google ads running from the very beginning. That like from day one, we had about a hundred dollars a month in Google ads. So that's like one click a day, right? So mm -hmm. a very, very small amount, but I've seen that working at my maid service and it really like, just like, okay, we know we're gonna get like five new people a day. So if we make a tweak, we can kind of like, it's not like proper testing, but you can begin to actually see results. It's not like you make changes and then you have to wait three weeks to get any traffic or whatever. And I really like the consistency of it. So we started at a hundred dollars a month and then worked our way up. But I think that my co-founder at the time was just really, really like fiscal um fiscally conservative uh i definitely felt like it was a bit ridiculous it was a bit surreal to me for us to be bringing in seven thousand dollars a month and yet we weren't taking any of it of it um like home but in hindsight i'm really glad that we took that approach that we were both earning our money elsewhere he was a phd student at stanford and had like a like a stipend or whatever and then i was working like a full-time job so it was partly just that neither of us really needed the money and then um i don't remember why it was so low when i like left but yeah, it was just like one one of those things. In hindsight, I'm really, really glad about it because I think yeah. it's one of the reasons that now I, I know that I can be happy with just like way less money and that I don't need as much, right? That like, you know, a couple of years ago, I felt like we already had like enough.
you know, yeah. which is a really nice feeling. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Keeping a, a bit of a frugal a lifestyle and appreciating the, you know, good things is, is very healthy. Um, you know, Elon Musk just, you know, I guess not just, but, you know, a while ago sold all his basically uh, houses, right? And assets. He is like completely asset light. Um, yeah, that's cool. And I guess, uh, so, you know, for the audience out there, uh, the decision to bootstrap and move to yeah. Thailand uh, for a while, I guess, before you started traveling the world. And I think out of the 10 years, you now been traveling eight years, right? Uh, and although now you're actually in the UK, uh, which is not mm -hmm. a cheap place either. Um, but obviously, you know, family reasons now, but, um, I guess, you know, the advice you can give to people who in your situation would have easily raised, you know, a lot of money because you had a great product, you had strong, you know, financial traction, great team. Why did you, first of all, how did you not get, let's say seduced by all the noise out there that you should be fundraising and you want to have, you know, your name on TechCrunch. Yeah. Uh, you know, how did you do that? Yeah. And be, you know, um, like what other considerations were there uh, to, to make you kind of like not yeah. fundraise? So there's a couple of things there. So first of all, I think that in hindsight, I think that it seems like a very like solid kind of like idea. It seems kind of obvious, like in hindsight, but when you look at the actual financial metrics, I mean, the reason that my co-founder left after four years is because we've been working on this and taking it very seriously as like our only thing like um, that, that we were doing. And after four years, we were sitting at about $15,000 a month in like in recurring revenue. And to him, that just wasn't good enough, right? And so for him, he was like, we've been, we've spent four years of our life on this. We're, we're adding on average 4K a year in monthly recurring revenue. Like this just, this isn't working, right? And I think he missed kind of like the power of compounding because in the three or four years after he left, we 10X the business, right? And so now it all looks like rainbows and sunshine. But I would say there's a couple of things. First of all, at no point in time have we ever had like venture type returns. Um, that our growth has never been that. Maybe it would have been if we had taken a bunch of money, gotten a sales team, put a bunch of money into paid advertising and like an all of um all of like that stuff. But in terms of how we didn't get seduced by it, it was my first like real company, I feel like, that the maid service felt like a side hustle. And this was something where like, this isn't a side hustle, this is the thing, right? And so that I think um, made it a bit more serious. But I read the four hour work week when it first came out in like 2006, 2007. So to me, it was all about freedom, right? That freedom was the only thing that I cared about. And going to Thailand, was the first step of that, right? That even though I was paying myself a thousand dollars a month and I had friends in Silicon Valley that were literally on salaries of 15 to $20,000 a month, I felt richer because they were jealous of me because I was in Thailand posting photos from the beach while working on like on my business and stuff, right? And so I think I always just had that like really, like really clear that to me, especially early on, if you don't know what you're doing and you haven't already experienced like a decent level of success to me, taking on outside funding is essentially, is essentially turning it into a job. Right. And so like there have been multiple times in the last 10 or 11 years that if I had VCs, 
regardless of the results, they would not have been happy with like, you know, in some cases, my behavior, in some cases, how I was choosing to like to spend my time and like, and all of that stuff. And that's just something that like, to me, that's not that that's not freedom. And so I, I think that really, um, really kept me on like on the on this, this the straight and narrow. Um, but I do have to say that being a young entrepreneur, I think I would have had a really, really hard time if someone in those first maybe four years or something had offered us like a seven figure check, right? I think if someone had said, hey, we'll give you a million dollars for like, you know, 40% of the business or something like early on, I think that would have been a very tough thing to say no to. But in hindsight, I'm very glad that didn't happen because I think we would have blown through the money, right? Yeah. I think that the way that I've been forced to build the business and to be really fiscally responsible and that everything that's being spent is essentially my money. I think that's something that now I would bet on myself to go in and like raise VC money and like to do like something big. And I may consider that in the future, depending on what sort of like shot that I want to take. But I feel like that comes from a place now of like core confidence. I'm not concerned that I would get like taken advantage of or sign like bad terms or work with someone that I shouldn't have. And like when I was younger, I think I would have been much more susceptible. And um, yeah, I mean, I think I think I would bet if I'd done that that the business wouldn't be around today, mm -hmm. right? It also changes the success metrics. That's the other thing, right? Is to me, it's like if this business had only ever made 10K or 20K a month, but me and my co-founder could keep it up and could take out 4K a month or like, or whatever, and you're telling me that because I raised money, it had to go to 100,000 a month or 200,000 a month or a million a month. Otherwise, it was a complete and total failure. That to me just doesn't doesn't sit right either. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a book I read actually over Christmas called The Founder's Dilemma. And it basically discusses oh, the yeah. whole notion between do you want to be king and be in control or do you <clears> want to be rich but not be in control, right? Like sometimes you can probably yeah. be also king and, you know, be rich, but, uh, you know, the, the, the common uh, path is that once you have VCs, you really need to spend the money because... IRR is a time, you know, bound metric, return metric, right? So you really exactly. want to scale revenue. And we had another founder yesterday, uh, a, a, you know, being interviewed by us. And basically what he said, the moment they raised Series A, they just needed to hire a lot of developers. Uh, and in hindsight, yeah. uh, they should have actually cleaned up a lot of the technical debt first and maybe started hiring only in six months rather than straight away, because by hiring so many, they created just even more mess and then they ended up firing 50% of the team uh, and basically almost running out of money yeah. uh, versus in the bootstrapped yeah. uh, scenario, you're in control of the time. And if you want to take it slower yeah. a year and learn some extra skills to be even more in control, you can mm -hmm. do that, right? Versus if you have a VC, uh, it's very difficult to pull off. Um, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, and then we discussed like a while ago, how client retention and, you know, the rise of competition, you know, is a bit of an issue sometimes and that you need to keep, you know, developing new product features to retain customers and really stand out. Right. And maybe could you tell us a bit more, how do you prioritize certain product features over others? Yeah. Um, so 
I think lots of people are going to be um, familiar with like the ICE framework of like impact, confidence, and effort, um, where you kind of like rank different things. We essentially do that, but it's a lot less, um, less like formalized. So I'm always keeping an eye like on, on competitors, right? That I think the competitors are important because they spend all day, every day thinking about the same problems that you do, right? So whenever I hear someone that's like, oh yeah, I don't care what my competitors do. I just think that's silly because I think that, you know, without stealing, you, you can find a lot of inspiration from your competitors, right? They'll come up with things where, um, you know, like one thing that I, that I look at a lot is like, what do other competitors say that they do that we can't say that we do? Because oftentimes, uh, like, like an example would be, uh, like QuickBooks integration, right? Is that was something that for, for a couple of years, like we, we kept losing business because people were like, Oh, you don't have a QuickBooks integration. I've got to go with this other like software. And we finally looked at the other software. Their QuickBooks integration was such a joke. Like I, 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 I wanted to jump off a bridge when I saw how terrible their QuickBooks integration was. Right. And so we essentially like just did that of, we were just like, Oh, like you mean to tell us that like this piece of crap qualifies as like a QuickBooks integration? Well, like we can do that. We just had it in our heads that we had to do this proper thing that did all of these things perfectly. And then we looked at that and we're like, Oh, we can just knock that off. And we immediately stopped losing business because of that, like that objection. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that one thing I think a lot of people miss is that they think about features as like this feature and like, they think that it just means this one thing in their head. And so if there's one thing I've learned over the years that like, you can always redefine features, right? You can always solve a problem in less time. Like if you want to, right. The solution won't be as good but you can always like do that. And so for me, when I'm looking at features, I'm looking at what do our competitors have? We're always listening to customers to try to stay ahead of the curve that we've come up with some very innovative features as well. Um, but we're trying to not develop with like our heads in the sand where everything is innovative. It's like, no, 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 you have expectations because you've moved over from our competitors. We need to match those expectations and then blow them away. So, so a lot of it is like feature parity with our competitors while also figuring out where do we have the opportunity to do more than them got it so a lot of the insights about your competitors do you get them from you know potential customers and the calls you do or do you you know basically have i don't know like you know people who test other software or you know interns internet other businesses giving you some intel so we um we, we usually are getting the feedback from like from customers, right? Where they'll go, oh, hey, like my current software does this. I saw that you guys don't. And we'll go, hey, can you just send us a video of like how, how you currently solve this? That's a really great question is just, can you send us a video of how you currently solve it? And mm -hmm. sometimes, because like oftentimes you get that as a sales objective is people go, oh, you don't do this? Well, in that case, I'm not using you. And we're like, great, how do you solve that now? And they're like, oh, I don't. It's like, well, then then stop saying that we need to do that in order like like I will show you 28 different ways that our software is way better than your current program just because we don't do this one thing that you also haven't found anywhere else doesn't mean that you're crossing us off like off your list or whatever right so um yeah like it's it's one of those things where um you know what I was saying about like kind of like uh 
finding out from folks like how do you currently like solve this problem but then the other thing that we're going to do is like we'll also jump into competitors softwares like every every now and again right and like they do the same thing to us right like you know there are probably some people watching that are like oh that's unethical and it's like it's a free trial right we're not lying to them i'll sometimes put in amar at zenmade.com i've had conversations with my with like my competitions like ceos because i saw that one of their designers like signed up or whatever right or like yeah. back in the day i remember the biggest competitor that we had signed up for a trial of our software because he was just keeping an eye on new competition and i sent him this like joke email about like what we were gonna you know do in the industry and stuff and like he was like i got through about half of this and then realized it was a joke and like we've kept in touch you know and like he sold that business so he's no longer a direct competitor which is brilliant because he doesn't care about sharing information that previously he never would have mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how much of the new business do you get from customers switching from another software to you versus maybe people who don't even use the software? Um, I, I don't actually know what that metric is because we can always see like who it is, like when someone signs up what they were using before, but we don't usually track it like after they become a customer and then go back and run the numbers. But if I had to guess, I mean, I would think it would be close to 50-50, but probably 60-40 on the side of software, that it's much easier to convince someone already using a software that our software is better than to convince someone using pen and paper that they should be using software, right? Because like usually they already know that. And so the reason that they're not are, are oftentimes like out of our control. So mm -hmm. um, I, I would I would think, I mean, maybe it's 70-30, but I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you with like any confidence which way it's actually, like it's actually skewed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, got it. So maybe going back, you know, for, for a brief moment to this whole like client acquisition strategy, right? You, you did obviously a lot of uh, direct outreach first um, and mm -hmm. alongside, you know, paid traffic, uh, and then, you know, a lot of SEO to get a lot more inbound. And I guess you, you run like email campaigns, et cetera, et cetera, now as well. Um, how did you go about testing the various different, you know, company, well, client acquisition channels and, and, and growth methods? Like, did you do it very slowly and you tested, you know, obviously paid traffic first and, and, and direct outreach? How did you get to... Okay, yeah. let's do SEO, for example. What was the process and maybe any other yeah. methods you, you tried out there? So I'm very much uh, a believer in like the, you, you have to see someone's like brand seven times to kind of like know, like, and trust them and be like willing to buy. So that's always been Zenmade's focus. So I've always been trying to just get us into as many places as possible. So I would say it was a very channel by channel basis, right? That what I liked about paid advertising at the beginning was it's like, okay, cool. So like I spent the time to set it up, research all the keywords and stuff. Now that it's set up, I can just take our budget from $100 a month to 150 and we get more traffic and then to 200 and onwards, right? And so that's that was almost like once I'd set up the system in place, then making the system generate more was just changing one variable, right? And so I'm always looking for things like that with all of my marketing channels. So for example, the cold email, cold email, I had a virtual assistant who would send out those emails for me. So even though I, I spent two years like doing cold email, for me, it was only replying to emails once the responses came in. So for me, it was just conversations. 
right? And then she generated the list for me to then go and cold call and all, all that stuff. So we definitely tried to cast a wide net of like, I tried to make sure early on that we were essentially visible on every marketing platform. So whether it was Facebook, Google, Captera, LinkedIn, we're just trying to kind of be everywhere, right? And then from there, we began to sort of notice different patterns of like what worked and everything. I'm not really the best with tracking and analytics that I'm much more of like a intuitive kind of like marketer or almost like a blind faith marketer where I'm just like, look, like I don't know how much money our community on Facebook brings us. And I've never been able to tell you that, but we have 8,000 dedicated maid service owners in our group now. And I guarantee that adds a ton of value to the business in ways that we probably like can't even put a number on, even if we could track everything like perfectly, right? So it's where our writer gets all of our content ideas, right? It's where we go when we have questions about like building a new feature and et cetera. So, um, yeah, well, what's funny that you asked that is so yesterday was literally the first day for our new director of demand acquisition. So I've just hired help to come in and to mm -hmm. properly track everything, make sure that things are in the right place, and then to scale up the things that are working. Because I've very much had a shotgun approach for the past 10, 11 years, and that's gotten us this far, but it's not going to get us to the next level, right? That, that I realized recently, I think when we were chatting in, um, in, no, in November, November, um, I think this might have actually come up um, that, uh, yeah, I just realized that I'm now at the extent of like where I can like take the company from a marketing perspective that I, I've topped out there. So mm -hmm. like um, my remaining growth is on like the product side and the leadership side and all that. Mm -hmm. And the community of maid service owners, how, how do you host this community? Is it like a kind of like a, a, a forum online or is it like a Slack group or WhatsApp yeah, group or? Just on Facebook. It's a Facebook group, basically. Yep. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, we have two. We have one, one for um, all maid service owners, and then one for um, for for Zen maid like users specifically. Um, yeah, wow, Facebook okay. is just where our audience hangs out. That's cool. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. And I guess right now, so you 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 know you make more than two hundred k MRR, and you know two point five million ARR. I guess it's a very high margin business because it's, you know, what, like probably 80% gross margin, maybe 50% EBDA margin or whatever. How do you decide how much money to put into various marketing channels? Like you mentioned the, you know, client acquisition manager, demand manager coming on board now. And obviously that's one of the tasks for this person, but in the past, did you just say, look, this is X amount of cash I want to like just put aside and this is what I'm happy to spend on marketing or was there some sort of other approach to it? Uh, honestly, there's no real rhyme or reason there. Um, if I saw if I saw things that were working and getting us a good payback period, then I would put in more money. Um, the margins on the business, uh, they aren't as high as people as people like think. I think that I get, maybe it just depends on like how you like define margins that like theoretically there's no cost, but like 
it costs a ton to keep like a team of developers like productive and happy and like and all of like all of that stuff. So we follow a profit first model. Um, and literally just every dollar that comes in, part of it immediately goes to taxes, part of it goes to profits. And then I'm, I'm operating the company on about 60%, I think, of like the revenue that we actually bring in is just like my total budget. And so this, this is one of the places that I personally need to grow a lot as like a leader and like as like the CEO um, is just getting kind of the finances a bit more systematized that we have everything like well tracked, but there's no real rhyme or reason to like where I put in like money and stuff, right? Like this new guy was like, cool, what's the budget? And I was like, I don't know, you know, the better you do, the more budget you get. But like, I don't know what to tell you outside of that. (laughs) Awesome, awesome. So what are the critical lessons you've learned to you think would benefit other SaaS founders? Well, so I think if you're bootstrapped, if you're bootstrapped, I think it's just don't give up. And I think that's very like cliche, but like at the same time, you know, I think what, what, what you had actually mentioned earlier in the interview, I don't think we were did too much deeper into it, but like when you take on venture capital, you're essentially starting a timer. Whatever money that they give you, there are now expectations on when that capital is returned, um, how much more than that capital is going to be returned. And like if you accomplish that five years later than what they expected, they're not going to be happy. If you're bootstrapped, you know, for me, that was the thing I think that my co-founder missed was he looked at it and was like, we're making, you know, 15K a month after four years. This is ridiculous. Whereas I looked at it and was just like, if you had told me at any point, at any time that I was younger in my life, that at any point I would have a business making $15,000 a month, I would never let go of that like that asset. Right. Like that would be something that would just be so crazy and like mind blowing. And it might just be like as a kid, you just have like low standards about money where like, you know, ten dollars is a lot, you know, or like or whatever, like it might um, it might be. But I do think that if you're in control of your of your business, then like you're in control of the timelines. And so I'm. Like, I'm not even interested in, like, getting rich per se. Like, I care a lot more about the freedom, but I'm very comfortable with getting rich slowly. And I see so many people that are trying to make, you know, $100,000, trying to do all these crazy things. Whereas to me, it, like, blows my mind that I have a company that makes $2.5 million a year at any profit margin. Doesn't even doesn't even matter, right? Like, if that's profitable, that's, like, amazing. And so I think, I think that, that just, like, leaning into that and just, like, not giving up, because especially if you're bootstrapped, it might not be this thing that you're currently working on that's going to work, but if you stick with it for long enough, something will work. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's just something that if you don't give up, eventually you'll find something. And, you know, we both know all sorts of stories of successful entrepreneurs that, that didn't have an entrepreneurial bone in their body until they were 50 years old or like, or, or whatever. And so I think that's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. If you're taking venture capital, I don't know what to tell you. Like, Time isn't real, but like work as hard as you possibly can for as long as you can. And like, hope your investors are happy. I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To be honest, I think the trend recently of bootstrapping became bigger again, right? Like it was very big with, you know, the Lean Startup book and obviously, you know, pre-sexy VC days. And yeah. I think in the last two years with a lot of the, let's say, VC funding activity drying up, uh, and also maybe some of the bad stories out there that, you know, founders who raised half a billion didn't make a penny when they exited. Yeah. Um, a lot of that indie hacker community and SaaS founders who, yeah, want to just bootstrap 
uh, that started being popular again, right? Um, yeah. Cool. But what, what I what I want is I want to. I'm starting to find more people, but I'm looking for more people that are kind of like at our size that are that are kind of like that good mix. And, you, you know, I mean, us being in, in the in the D.C., it's like that's the best community that I've found for it thus far is I'm looking for that mix of like of lifestyle design, but also wants to take like the business seriously. Right. Because like I'm not in a rush. Right. I'm very like chill, but I'm also very, very intense. Right. Like I also very much want to see this company at 10 million dollars a year at 50 million dollars a year and like and beyond and everything. I'm just not in a rush and I'm also okay if I don't get there, but I'm very competitive about it. Right. And that's something that I feel like that's where bootstrappers, I feel like sometimes get like a bad, like a bad rap or whatever, because you see like a lot of them, like a lot of like the solo devs, they build up something to like $10,000 a month. They're okay. And they're not striving for more. And I respect that. Right. But I, I want people that like, both want to build a $10 million company and are also okay. Just like taking a week off to go to the beach because like, we don't have to do it tomorrow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think, I think it might come in phases as well. Right. I and mean, you're part of microconf as well. Right. With like a lot of the indie hackers and maybe it's just yeah. like, you know, once they had that two years in Thailand, they are ready to go back and try to mm -hmm. scale. Right. Maybe that's part of that as well. Yeah. Well, and the, the other thing is like, because like, I, I, I hope that that didn't come across as like as too critical because I get what those guys are doing and why they're doing it. That in, in a lot of cases where I think it's very much the right decision is for the ones that don't want to be managers, right? If you're just like, you look like I just want to keep developing and just like keep writing code and I don't want to manage people or like build this into a company or like, or whatever. I think that's perfectly fine. And I respect that when people like know that, um, I think it's when people try to say that they're an entrepreneur, but it's just, it's just them that that's where it kind of like rubs me the wrong way of it's just like, Hey, like you built a cool tool, you get paid a nice amount of money, but like, let's not kid ourselves. Like you're not striving for like, for more than this. And like, that's okay. But like, let's just be honest about it. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Cool. So let's do a quick fire for questions for you. Um, okay. What book recommendation is there for other SaaS founders? So the one I wasn't sure, but I was reading, I was rereading it actually this morning. Um, and yeah, I thought that I, that I would throw it out there is a who, not how. Um, I think it's by Dan Sullivan and I forget who the co-author is. Um, I was rereading it today and I'm kind of like, ah, like, I don't know. I mean, let's put it this way. It's a really great concept, right? I think you could probably read like the first chapter of the book and get most of it like out. I think that's true of a lot of books like these, these days, yeah. but um, who not how I think is a really good one. And it's exactly like the title says, it's talking about approaching your problems from rather than having the mindset of like, how do I get, you know, Zen made from 200 K MRR to 300 K MRR? It's who do I need? Yeah. to make that happen. And that's why like we brought in this director of demand gen yesterday, where it's kind of weird, where like up until now, I've always figured out how we're going to get to the next level. And this is the first time that I was like, Nope, that's his job. Like his job is to, is to do that. So I think that that book is probably worth worth reading. But also, I might have just given you a good enough summary that you probably don't, don't need. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Um, awesome. Awesome. Okay, cool. The next question is, uh, who is an entrepreneur you admire? So I wrote down three and I think it's because they're all, they all fit that, that mold of what, um, what I was just saying, um, that they're like driven and like 
entrepreneurial driving for more, but also clearly value like lifestyle and are like balanced, right? They have truly balanced lives that that like I'm jealous of, and I'm not very jealous of like a very many people, right? I can count on on you know two hands all the people that I'm jealous of in the world, and these three probably make make it. Um, so one is a uh, Nick Gray who wrote the two hour um, the two hour cocktail party. Um, he sold a business previously, but just the way that he lives life is like is really really like quite cool and quite inspiring. Uh, Neville Medora, who's a copywriter that has like a community of copywriters. He's another one. Great work-life balance. He's clearly uh, very consciously designed his life to be what he wants it to be. Um, and, you know, he's still ambitious, but ambitious in his own way. And then the last one is Nathan Barry from ConvertKit that I feel like me and him are very, very similar. He just makes 15 times more money than, than I do and like flies around on private jets, but is essentially like that prototypical kind of like lifestyle, like entrepreneur while also striving for more. So th those, those were my, were my three. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Usually people, say you know bill gates or you know whatever jeff bezos but it's it's really interesting to 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 see who the you know people are who you admire um okay and what is a SaaS tool only you know or like you know you use but not many other people know of so I struggled with this one. Um, I wrote down a mobile app that I use. Um, I think you and I have talked about a couple of times, um, but I wrote down a mobile app that I use called Athena. Um, it's from a company called Athena Delegation, which I think like helps to uh, like hire out VAs. I guess it's like a free tool that they that they offer. Um, I think maybe they're completely unrelated, but I can't imagine that. I don't know. Anyways. Um, Athena Delegation is a mobile app that allows you to essentially click one button and opens up like a voice recorder and then you click one button and it closes the app and that's all that you have to do. And you can have that message automatically sent to like your Slack or to a couple of different things that you can set up uh, in the settings. So for me, that's a direct connection to my executive assistant. So um, literally, I think things out loud into my phone and they start happening with in my company. Uh, mm -hmm. At any time I've got a message for the CTO or anything like that, I can literally just click a button, say this thing, and then and then just like move on. Um, and it's great if you have if you have ADHD like I do that um, going into into WhatsApp, for example, to like record a voice note for my executive assistant, I would get distracted at least half the time because I'd open up WhatsApp and have messages from you or from my other friends that were there at the top, and then I'd forget what I was even like even in there for. And so that that's been an absolute um, lifesaver and just um, yeah that, that single-handedly has made my quality of life much higher on a day-to-day -day basis amazing amazing and then finally you know what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten I think it's probably the don't give up that I that I said like before but like applied to everything like in life of um, I don't know if it's even like the best like advice that I've gotten but like one of the best things that I've ever done in my life was uh, was Brazilian Jiu Jitsu that I did that for like a while. I don't know if I'm going to get back to it anymore because of like because of, uh, of injuries never even made it, you know, beyond like beyond white belt. But I did that for like, you know, six, eight months or something where I just got crapped on like 
every single day, like in training until after six months, someone new finally joined the gym. And then I was actually able to see all of the progress that I made. But that was something that just kind of emphasized to me. It's like, if you stick with something for six months and you just keep showing up, you will get way better at it. And you will likely be way better at it than like, you know, 90% of the population with just like that much, like that much time that if you practice handstands for 10 minutes a day for six months, you'll be better than 90% of the population that like at handstands, right? Yeah. And so that that's something that I, I think is something that I where especially when I'm not in a rush and I'm not worried about time, that's something that I think really keeps me going of just like, I know that I need to become a better manager and I have time to do that and I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to put any like, you know, time pressure on it of like, I'm going to do that work consistently, but I'm not going to say I have to be this person in six months because I just don't find that it serves. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Never give up. That's a, that's a perfect end to our interview as well. Uh, look, I mean, it's been super interesting and fascinating. So thanks so much for, you know, joining and giving us your time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, if anyone wants to um, wants to reach out, Twitter is the best way to um, to get in contact with me. Um, when I do podcast interviews like these, I'm always willing to jump on um, to jump on quick calls. So if anyone, if you want to just DM me on um, on on Twitter, I'm happy to jump on like a 15, 20 minute call and talk through like whatever with other um, other SaaS founders. Uh, but yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. This awesome. is really uh, really fun. Cool, amazing. Thanks so much. Bye. All right. Thanks. Thanks for sticking around. If you want to see the show notes, please go to neoptima.com slash SaaS podcast. Otherwise, see you at the next episode. Bye.